Hey, everybody. Thanks for being here. I have a great guest for you today, Ben Norton, uh, the, the editor-in-chief of Multipolarista and formerly with the Gray Zone. He does amazing work. We're going to talk about the coup that has just gone down in Peru. We're going to talk about uh, Latin America working to replace the the U.S. dollar hegemony. We got a lot of topics. Julian Assange is going to come up. Got a lot of stuff coming up. Uh, so please hang in there, enjoy it, and uh, let people know. Hit the likes, share it, all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, this is an ongoing interview series. I've already talked to Scott Ritter, Chris Hedges, uh, Stephen Don's good Greg Palast, uh, and 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 we're doing two of these a week. So we hope you will join us for each and every one at youtubecom behind the headlines. But all right, let's bring him in. Here is Ben Norton. Hey Ben, hey, how's it going, Lee? Good. How are you? Good. Well, well, I'm personally okay, but the political situation in Latin America right now is very depressing, and we'll talk about that today. There are good things happening, but there are also two coups in two days. So you picked, and, and we planned this interview like yeah. two weeks ago, so you two actually ended up picking the perfect day, unfortunately. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's start with Peru. Um, this is how... And, you know, I think there's a lot to break down here. I think to begin with, you got to tell people because, I, you know, I'm not even that heavily familiar with him, but uh, who uh, Castillo is and, and what he kind of stands for. But I just want to show people, let's see, this is the CNN coverage of it. Peru's president impeached and arrested. This is yesterday after he attempts to dissolve con uh, Congress. And then um, let's see, here is Telesur covering it as well uh peru's crisis prompts reaction from latin american leaders and they get statements from uh many uh, leaders in latin america but uh you know n i i'd say amlo's probably uh is kind of the clearest he says due to the interests of economic and political elites since the beginning of pedro castillo's legitimate presidency an atmosphere of confrontation and hostility has been maintained against him until leading him to make decisions that have served his adversaries to consummate his dismissal. Uh, so, yeah, let's, you know, start wherever you want to start. But I think you should explain to people uh, a little bit about who Castillo is. Yeah, well, I mentioned that there were two coups in two days in Latin America on December 7th and December 6th. So December 6th, there we'll talk in a bit about a judicial coup, a political coup against the vice president of Argentina and former president Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner of the left, of course. All of these coups are against left-wing leaders. And then the next day, the 7th, there was a coup, a congressional political coup against the leftist president of Peru, Pedro Castillo. Now, what both of these coups show is that the nature of coups in Latin America has shifted we do still sometimes see military coups. In 2019, there was a straight-up military coup against the elected president of Bolivia, Evo Morales, also a socialist. So again, they're all left-wing leaders that there are coups against. And of course, the U.S. backs all of these. But that that is actually kind of the, uh, the, the minority of coups now in Latin America. Most coups in Latin America are more unconventional, and they're a form of what you could call hybrid warfare. So I just wanted to begin stressing that point because what we're going to when we talk about the the details and get in the weeds, I think the overall uh, point that people should take away is to understand that 
not every coup backed by the U.S. and Latin America is the same as the old school style military coups like we saw right. famously on the first September 11th attack of 1973, in which the CIA overthrew the elected socialist president of Chile, Salvador Allende. That was a straight up classic style Pinochet military coup, right? Led by a general. What we're seeing now is a more and, sophisticated and, and form. Can I just jump in real quick? Luckily under Trump, because he and his people were so inept, you got to see some of that fun stuff again, like the Bay of Piglets, a bunch of guys with guns trying to arrive on the coast of Venezuela. It failed miserably. But, you know, that, that's kind of the old school. Nowadays, it's done, you know, the, what was done Emron Khan recently. It's done kind of in, in Congress, in Parliament, judicially. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so this is all part of what you could call hybrid warfare or what has also been called fourth generation warfare. That's to say that the character of war has shifted in many ways, not only in terms of you know military conflicts, but also most war is done through other means. So you have economic warfare through sanctions and impositions of blockades and embargoes, blocking countries from the international financial system, stealing their central bank reserves, stealing Venezuela's gold. You also have information warfare through fake news and disinformation. You have uh, cyber warfare through targeting countries' infrastructure, like we saw against Venezuela, also against Iran with the Stuxnet virus. There's a documentary about that. And then you also have straight up political warfare and what you could call legal warfare, judicial warfare, or what's commonly now called lawfare. And that term in Latin America has become very popular, lawfare, to refer to these new kinds of coups that we've seen. And really, the beginning of this goes back to Brazil, when Lula da Silva was president and then his successor, Dilma Rousseff, was president. They're from the left-wing workers' party in Brazil. We saw, and, and also in Argentina, against the, the Kirchners. First, uh, Nestor Kirchner, who was a leftist, and his wife, Cristina Fernandes de Kirchner, who is now the vice president, and she served two terms as president. What we saw against both of them and against Lula and his successor, Dilma, in Brazil is a constant series of attacks by the right-wing oligarchy, you know, millionaires and billionaires who are trying to use the judicial system and the legal system to attack these elected presidents and remove them from office. And that is exactly what we saw against Pedro Castillo. So you just got up on the screen here. This is a, the United Nations determined that the 2018 imprisonment of Lula da Silva in Brazil was completely illegal. It was based on fake charges. It was an, an act of arbitrary detention. And the judge who oversaw that case in Brazil, his name is Sergio Moro, he's a CIA asset. I mean, immediately after imprisoning Lula on these fake charges that were later completely dropped and expunged by the Brazilian Supreme Court, what happened? He was appointed the super justice minister of Jair Bolsonaro, the far-right leader of Brazil, and then they immediately visited CIA headquarters in Virginia. So, I mean, it, it's just as blatant as it gets. These people were conspiring was, with the CIA. And, and there was a bunch of leaked uh, emails and texts that proved this was corrupt. Yeah, one of the main prosecutors in the case joked, but it was obviously not a joke. He said, this is a gift from the CIA. I mean, it's just all blatant. So the, the CIA coups of the 50s, 60s, and 70s today are, are more nuanced, if you will. And, and that, that will... That, that leads the propaganda to be more sophisticated. People will be like, well, we need more nuance. But the reality is that these are coups. They are blatant coups. 
the character of the coup has shifted, but they still are coups. And that brings us to what happened in Peru, right? So the narrative in that spread by the U.S. Embassy, the U.S. Embassy in Peru tweeted out this, uh, this declaration condemning Pedro Castillo and, and creating this narrative that tries to blame the victim of the coup for the coup. And basically the propaganda narrative is that Pedro Castillo was carrying out a coup and that's why they had to launch a coup against him, right? So, right. so it, I tell people in the comments section were saying, I, I heard the news that he was the one creating a coup. Well, this is exactly how, the, again, there's this idea of like propaganda tries to make it sound more nuanced, right? And we saw this with the war in Syria, with the war in Libya. They say, oh, this is not an imperialist war led by the U.S. and NATO and Israel against independent post-colonial Arab nations. No, we need more nuance, right? They always call for nuance or during the 2019 coup against Evo Morales. But that, that appeal to nuance is disingenuous. It's trying to distract from the fact that this is a coup, but it's a more sophisticated coup than the straight up old style military coups. All right, what happened in, in Peru is that Pedro Castillo is a leftist. He is a former teacher who led a teacher's strike. And he's from a rural area. He's of indigenous descent in a country, Peru, where the light-skinned European descendant elite have dominated the country and the political system for decades. So he's of indigenous descent. He's from a rural area. He led a teacher's strike and he became popular because of the teacher's strike. And he was elected as president. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people don't know the the race issue that goes on in a lot of these countries where you have far lighter skinned people, which represent the oligarchy ruling over darker skinned people. And it's similar in Venezuela. Yeah, I mean, in many parts of Latin America and these people are their descendants of the European colonialists. Right. They, their descendants were the big landlords who stole the land from the indigenous peoples. They owned all the big corporations. And in the case of Venezuela, it's exactly the same. In fact, the, the, the leader of the right-wing opposition in Venezuela, eh, I mean, who's a complete fascist, his name is Leopoldo Lopez. His other last name is, is Lopez Mendoza. Mendoza is one of the most powerful oligarch families in Venezuela. And his grandfather was the Norwegian consul who was sent by the Norwegian monarchy to be the representative. And he owns all these corporations. And he's also linked to like all of the Spanish colonialists. I mean, you can go through every country and show the different oligarch families and show their descent their descent just over like three or four generations to colonialists european colonialists in the region and in the case of peru and also bolivia there never really have been indigenous leaders in bolivia the first ever indigenous president was evo morales who was overthrown in a u.s-backed fascist coup in 2019 and then now in peru you had this indigenous descent uh union organizer and teacher from a rural area pedro castillo okay so he wins the election and surprisingly, no one thought he was going to win. He was, you know, a, a third, fourth party candidate. And he was from this, this leftist party, which actually technically is a Marxist-Leninist party called Peru Libre. It's a little complicated because he later had fights with his own party. But anyway, the point is that he's from the left. He represents the poor indigenous majority of Peru that have been disenfranchised and ignored by the political class. And he comes to power and immediately the right wing which controls the Congress tries to launch a coup against him. So we should understand that Peru has had six presidents in five years. And why is that? Because Peru has this insane system. It's one of the stupidest political systems in the world where if the Congress has over 60 percent 
of a vote, they can immediately kick out the president and have something they call a vacancy. It's similar to the impeachment wow. in the U.S., but the thing is, in the U.S., if a president's impeached, they don't have to step down, right? Trump was impeached two times. He right. didn't step down. Technically, Richard Nixon, even though he was impeached, that's not why he stepped down. He stepped down because of the other scandals. He didn't have and to step down. Clinton was also impeached and did not leave. Yeah. yeah. So the difference is in Peru, all you need is 60% in the Congress, and it forces the president to, to step down through what they call a vacancia, a vacancy. So- so in, let, in, but let me ask you, the, the vote against him was, uh, I think, 101 to 6 to, to impeach and take him out. Why, why so one-sided? Well, yeah, well, I'll explain. That was, that was later. Okay, okay, so what happens is that Castillo won the election. He won the presidential election, but the left only had a small minority in the Congress. The vast majority of the Congress was dominated by the right wing. And in Peru, for decades, the political system has been dominated by basically two factions of the right-wing oligarchy. The straight-up fascists, who are what they call the Fujimorists, the Fujimoristas, who follow in the footstep of the former fascist dictator of Peru, who was backed by the U.S., named Fujimori. And so the Fujimoristas are the, you know, far right. And then there's like the more technocratic neoliberal right that you could say it's kind of more of a center right. And they battle for power constantly, right? And Fujimori, Alberto Fujimori, who's the fascist dictator who ruled uh, Peru, and he committed genocide against the indigenous people, including involuntary um, uh, fertilization, uh, involuntary, uh, what's the term? Um, uh, sterilization, involuntary yeah. sterilization of indigenous women in Peru. So and he, he, he oversaw a US-backed dictatorship. His daughter, Keiko Fujimori, was the other main presidential candidate who claimed cl came close to winning. And she represents one of the main right-wing factions in the Congress. And the other faction is just these right-wing neoliberals, right? So all of them were against, uh, against Pedro Castillo and the left did not have a majority. So immediately after he entered, the, the Congress multiple times did a vote to try to overthrow him, a, a political coup. And they failed two different times. And then that brings us to December 7th, where once again, they were going to do another vote and they had enough votes, they were going to overthrow him. And that's why Pedro Castillo dissolved the Congress, which by the way, the, the uh, Peruvian president, according to the constitution, has the right to dissolve the Congress. What he did was not illegal. Now it wasn't popular, I won't deny that, mm -hmm. but it was not illegal. And why is that? Because who also dissolved Congress? Well, multiple right-wing presidents going back to Fujimori, who was the U.S.-backed, you know, the great poster boy the U.S. loved because he was a neoliberal who imposed all these Chicago boy economic policies. And he dissolved Congress, too. And the U.S. supported him when he did that, right? Because he rewrote the Constitution that allowed the president to dissolve the Congress because, again, the Congress is this insanely undemocratic Congress where it's just constantly overthrowing presidents. So, it's true that he dissolved the Congress, but it was not a coup. It was legal politically. It was in the Constitution. And the Peruvian police responded and the Peruvian military responded by publishing a statement, a public statement saying that what he did was not illegal, but they oppose it. So imagine the U.S. president does something that's legal. It's constitutional, even though it's unpopular. And then the military says, well, technically, this is constitutional, but we're against it. And then a few hours later, they imprisoned, they arrested him. Right. So that that led to the Congress, of course, while the president is being arrested and 
while there's all this massive, you know, criticism of him for dissolving the, the Congress, then you have the vote against him where you have the vast majority of the Congress vote against him. Because at that point, it was just clear that he was he was not going to be in office. And basically everyone in Congress, except like the most hardcore left wing loyalists, voted against him because they knew he was just dead. You know, he, he they, was, they were just projecting yeah. their own asses going forward. Yeah. Yeah. So then the Congress immediately appoint the vice president, who is a right winger, even though technically she was from the leftist Peru Libre Party. She was expelled from the party. And she, she said, I never believed in their left wing ideology. She was expelled several months ago before all of this coup. Right. So, so, so when he announced her as a, did he get to choose his vice president and he just chose poorly? <laughs> yeah, well, he had this is the other thing he had. He had multiple vice presidents. So the thing about Peru is that, again, as soon as he entered, and, and you read this, this statement from the Mexican left-wing president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, known as AMLO, he released a very good statement. And AMLO said, look, eh, ever since Pedro Castillo entered office, he was never allowed to govern. And in fact, a week after Castillo entered office, the military forced his foreign minister to resign because he had a, an anti-imperialist so, socialist foreign minister named Hector Bejar. Imagine the, the U.S. military tells Biden that Antony Blinken has to resign because they don't like him. That's, I mean, obviously that would never happen in the U.S. That's exactly what happened in Peru. And then he yeah. had a socialist vice president. And the point is that he constantly had all of these people in his government that were forced to resign. So eventually he appoints this vice president of the, from more of the right wing technically from his party, but she was expelled. She's right wing. And her name is Dina Boluarte. So basically, she clearly was the candidate of the oligarchy. They, the oligarchy and the military kept forcing all of his vice presidents and his ministers to resign. And then they pick him, they pick her, excuse me. And she clearly was the candidate they wanted to take his place as president. So, I mean, what, what we're seeing is that at every single stage, for every level from day one, Castillo was never allowed to govern all of his, you know, the opposition was forcing all of his people to resign. And then they were putting in their own loyalists who were loyal to them. And then finally, they were, were about to overthrow him in a political coup. So he dissolves the Congress. And then they say he's a dictator. He's dissolving the Congress. And then they do a, a congressional coup against him and install this vice president who was expelled from the leftist party. And what right. does she do immediately in her speech? She calls for a tregua política, which means a political truce, and she calls for creating a government of national unity with the right wing. So, so it was a right wing so, coup. Uh, yeah, I, and that seems pretty clear. I know you can't, we can rarely know this for certain, uh, but like, how much do you think the U.S. is involved in this, and are there ways to tell? Well, we don't have concrete evidence yet like we did in Pakistan, I mean, it's very similar to the coup in Pakistan, and it's like this new generation of coups, right, where basically the Congress, if it's controlled by the opposition, you know, oligarchs bribe them, the U.S. embassy is working behind the scenes to try to whip votes in the Congress to have a vote to overthrow the, the president or prime minister. This is exactly what happened in Pakistan. We have photos of opposition lawmakers in Pakistan who were meeting with the U.S. embassy and we and according to Imran Khan, he leaked, uh, you know, receipts showing that they were being bribed, like money transfers showing that they were being bribed. So, yeah. I mean, in the case of Pakistan, it's very clear that the U.S. government was working behind the scenes to get enough votes to overthrow uh, Imran Khan, the elected prime minister. 
And they said that they were going to have a new election. Of course, they have not had a new election. And the new coup regime in Pakistan, which said that it was overthrowing him because he was unpopular in scare quotes, is the least popular government in decades. It, it has like single digit approval ratings and they keep delaying elections and they say they're not going to have elections. Meanwhile, the coup regime is trying to assassinate Imran Khan. So in the case of Peru, it's very similar, right? The, I mean, we don't know. We don't have concrete evidence that the U.S. government was behind the scenes working with the Congress to do it, yeah. although it's very likely. But the U.S. embassy immediately released after he dissolved Congress, like minutes later, the U.S. Congress published. Uh, sorry, the U.S. Um, embassy in Peru released a statement denouncing him and saying that he was violating democracy and all this stuff. Right. So. I mean, it's it's very right. they, and and we see this with the media, the the U.S. Empire's media is they will barely or lightly cover when a leftist leader uh, wins the presidency democratically, but then you'll see wall to wall coverage of these leaders when they're taken out via some version of a coup, or when they try to defend themselves. Like, right. I mean, he did dissolve the Congress, even though it was constitutional; it was unpopular. But he was trying to save his political life because he knew that if he didn't dissolve the Congress, the Congress was going to overthrow him in a coup. So he dissolved the Congress and then the military overthrew him in a coup. The police arrested him because he dissolved the Congress. Right. So, I mean, like it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Either way, he was going to be a victim of a coup. So he decided to try to save himself. And yeah. obviously by trying to save himself, you know, that then that you know, but trying to take action to defend yourself, that is then used to justify the coup against you. It's, I mean, it's so similar to what happened with Imran Khan in Pakistan. I mean, it, it's, it really shows this new playbook, this new, uh, you know, playbook for coups. And I just really want to add another point here that yeah. the Organization of American States, the OAS, which is a completely undemocratic U.S. dominated institution that was created in the 1940s, by the U.S. as a coalition of right-wing anti-communist regimes in Latin America, including military dictatorships like the, the far-right dictatorship in Nicaragua of the Somoza dynasty. The OAS was integral in backing the coup against Evo Morales in Bolivia in 2019. They spread fake news, fake claims that he didn't win the election, that he you know, rigged the vote, which is completely false, and was debunked even by the OAS's own data, later by MIT scholars. Well, the OAS also rubber stamped the coup in Peru. It's a big surprise. The main figure in the OAS, the leader, uh, Luis Almagro, who's extremely corrupt. He's obviously just a complete U.S. puppet. He rubber stamped the coup and said that we recognize Dina Boluarte as the legitimate president of Peru. Even though the irony is that the, the Congress in Peru literally has 7% approval. It has single digit approval. So sounds people like our, say, sounds like our Congress. <laughs> yeah, no, it's exactly right. So people will say, well, you know, Castillo had lost popular approval and we can talk about that. Like he made a lot of mistakes and he was losing democratic support and popular support, even though what he did was technically constitutional. But the Congress in Peru is even less. So it's even less popular. It has 7% approval. And the OAS immediately rubber stamped and said, this new president who was not elected, Dina Boluarte, is is legitimate, unlike the elected president, Pedro Castillo. So you said uh, two coups in two days. What's the other one? In Argentina, which is also, once again, it's not as cut and dry like a military coup, but it's a blatant coup. So in Argentina, the leftist vice president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, 
She is the the wife, uh, the widow of the former leftist president, Nestor Kirchner. He died. She became president after him. And both of them follow in the footsteps of Juan Perón, which is he's a very complicated figure. I don't have time to figure it. I don't have time to get into who he is. But the point is that Peronismo, Peronism in Argentina is a kind of developmentalist nationalist movement that is opposed to neoliberal economics. And it's been dominated largely by the left, although there are right wing currents. And Kirchner represents the Kirchneristas, which is the left wing of Peronism. And they're against neoliberalism. They, they're social democrats. They they're not socialists, but they they want to support poor people and have welfare programs. And they're against the oligarchy. And Argentina is dominated by a, a capitalist oligarchy of agro industry, the banking industry. Like there's a few industries that really are dominant and support the right wing neoliberal forces. So she was president for two terms, and then she is now vice president under the current president who's been a disaster honestly but that's a complicated other thing the current president is like more of a centrist and she formed a coalition as the left wing forces representing the left wing forces and she's vice president and they were supposed to have a power sharing agreement but didn't actually work out so she was thinking of running again for president in 2023 because next year there's going to be presidential elections so she was likely going to be considered the most likely candidate to win the presidential elections in 2023 and come back on a left-wing platform. So what happened? The right-wing controlled, extremely corrupt judicial system in Argentina, I mean, just cartoonishly corrupt. Mm -hmm. They had this case against her that was written in 2019, by the way, and they brought back this case and they sentenced her to six years in prison. And she's not actually going to go to prison. Because if you're over 70 years old, you don't go to, you can't be jailed in Argentina for a nonviolent offense. So she's not going to oh, actually sounds, be in prison. Sounds uh, like fairly. Uh, what? Fa sounds fairly moral. Sounds fairly like a, yeah, exactly. like, a, like a like a good idea, but we would never do that here. <laughs> so they know that she's not actually going to go to prison. But the real reason they did this case against her is because she's now banned from public office. She cannot. As soon as she leaves in 2023. She is banned from public office. And what you're, what you're showing here is a, an article showing that on September 1st, a neo-Nazi tried to murder her. Tried, he, they, there was a gunman and the gun jammed because it was like an old Italian gun that was like not kept, kept up well. So they literally tried to murder her on September 1st. And there was a crazy video of this gunman coming up with the gun right in her face and it jams. And then her security guard tackles him. Like it's, it's insane. So they tried to murder her physically on September 1st. And mm -hmm. we now know we have evidence showing that this gunman was linked to like right wing, extreme right wing forces in Argentina. And of course, you know, people probably know that Nazis and fascists after World War II, they some of them fled to Argentina. So like when I say that they're fascists and Nazis, it's not hyperbole. Like literally there are fascists and Nazis who are trying to kill her. That failed. Right. So now they politically killed her by preventing her from holding public office with this completely bogus case overseen by corrupt judges who literally we have photos and videos of them meeting with the leaders of right-wing media outlets in their mansions with fancy dinners, taking them on planes and like taking them on vacations on planes. Like literally the judges and the prosecutors were being bribed and given fancy vacations and first-class uh, plane flights and you know trips to their mansions and fancy dinners 
by the same right-wing oligarchs who own the media in Argentina, which is almost entirely owned by the right-wing oligarchy, specifically Clarín, which is the main right-wing media outlet. It's kind of like the Fox News of Argentina. I mean, so literally, like, all of the media oligarchs conspired and bribed with, they conspired with and bribed the prosecutors to do this case against her using a, 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 a sentencing that was literally written three years ago. And why? Because they wanted to prevent her from running for office, for running for president in 2023. And in response to it, she said, okay, you won. I'm not going to run for office. As soon as I leave uh, in, in 2023 as vice president, that is the end of my political career. You win. But she said in her speech, a very powerful speech, she said, I will never be your political pet. I will never follow your orders. You, she said, they're condemning me not because I did anything wrong. They're condemning me because of my economic program in defense of poor people and working people. And she said that I was not the one who trapped the country in $45 billion in IMF debt. That was mm -hmm. the corrupt right-wingers. That was them. And she said, they may try to kill me or put me prisoner, but I will never be their political pets, she said. Ah, so, so who's president now in Argentina? Well, it's a complicated story because the current president, is his name is Alberto Fernandez. And the, the original plan is that he was going to, he represents the kind of more centrist forces. He's not a leftist. And the idea was that they created a, a political coalition called the Frente de Todos, which means the, fr the political front of everyone, right? And it was, it was a political front unifying all of the left-wing parties, but also some centrists against the right wing, right? And the idea was that he would be president, but then Cristina would be vice president and it would be a power sharing agreement. But unfortunately, it's a lesson for the left in the future. As soon as they entered, basically, he was like, yeah, screw you. And, and there, was all, there was a constant conflict between her ministers. She was allowed to appoint a few ministers and his ministers. And then a bunch of her ministers resigned in protest of his economic policies and his negotiations with the IMF. So there was this constant fighting going on between the left-wing faction of the front and then the centrists, and especially represented by the head of the Congress named Sergio Massa. So anyway, the point is that after all of these fights, she said that she was probably going to run. She didn't officially announce it, but before the sentencing, she was hinting that she was going to run for president in 2023, but now she can't, which means that very likely the right wing is going to win the 2023 election just as they were previously governing. And what did they do? They took the largest loan from the International Monetary Fund in history, over $55 billion. And now literally Argentina cannot pay off that debt. It is literally impossible for the Argentine government to get enough dollars to pay off the $55 billion in odious debt. And that's why Argentina has been in this downward economic depression, the spiral of yeah. growing inflation, of unemployment, decreasing wages. That did not start with the current government. It started with the right-wing neoliberal banker president, extremely corrupt multi-multi-millionaire named Mauricio Macri, who took this IMF debt that he knew would trap the future governments in debt. And this is what has happened in Argentina for decades. Again and again and again, the government is trapped in IMF debt that the U.S. imposes on the country in collaboration with the corrupt right-wing oligarchy so that if the left ever comes to power, they can't pay off the debt and they can't implement the kind of social democratic and redistributive economic policies they want to, they want to carry out. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that these, the, the U.S. 
imprisons countries more uh, with debt, controls countries more with debt than almost with anything else. And that brings us to the topic which I was going to lead the show off, off on, but uh, instead all of this shit went down. But this very much relates to to what's happening, I think. The, the U.S. is always kind of interested in cooing, uh, you know, leftist or, or semi-leftist governments in Latin America. However, I think that interest has been amped up recently, both because of uh, the the great power conflict the U.S. now has with Russia and China, but also because uh, of, you know, uh, an article you wrote that uh, that there is a plan ongoing amongst Latin American countries to uh, harm U.S. dollar hegemony, which is where we get a lot of our power is from the U.S. dollar, the petrodollar and the reserve currency. So uh, let's get into that article you wrote. Yeah, so around the world, we're seeing attempts by different regional blocs to create alternatives to the U.S. dollar. We should understand that there really is a kind of global dictatorship of the dollar in the sense that the vast majority of global trade is done with the U.S. dollar. In fact, I have a graph. If you, if you want to go down on this, I, you're showing my article here. If you go down to the, the first graph in the article, it'll just help show people. Uh, it'll be a good visualization right there. This graph is from the U.S. Federal Reserve, which is the de facto U.S. central bank, although it's partially privatized like everything in the U.S. And it shows the share of international trade that is, ex that is invoiced in dollars. So these are exports, which is international trade, right? So the, if you look at the different regions of the world, excluding Europe, which obviously has the euro, excluding Europe, all of the other regions of the world do the vast majority of their trade in the U.S. dollar. We're talking about over 80% around the world. And in Latin America, it is the most dependent on the dollar. In all of the Americas, so that includes North America, Central America, and South America, 96% of exports are invoiced in dollars. That is to say that dollars are involved in almost 100% of trade in the region. So what that means is that if Brazil wants to trade with Mexico, they each have their own currency, right? So instead of trading in their domestic currencies, they trade basically in the dollar and each country, it depends on if you're an exporter or importer, it's a little more complicated and simplifying it. But the point is that they, they exchange their currency for dollars to do the trade, right? Which means that if you're a country like Cuba or Iran or Russia or Venezuela, and you're locked out of the US dominated financial system, you're screwed. It's extremely hard for you to do international trade. Right. Furthermore, the US government dominates the so-called that SWIFT system, that's the interbank messaging system. So if one bank wants to communicate with another bank to exchange money, because again, if you're doing trade, you're going to do it in other currencies. And we're not talking about physical physical currencies, right? Like it, we, for, for, we haven't for, for many decades and even centuries, most trade hasn't involved like actually physically sending currency across the ocean. It's done with IOUs. It's done through back, you yeah. know, in... In the 20th century, it was done through like bank um, bank IOUs, just like the the bank uh, deposits, and it was done through a paper system. Now it's all done on computers. It's yep. literally zeros and decimal points on a computer system. Something like 98% of currency is never printed. Yes. Exactly. So what that means, is, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but what is bad about it, because it's what's good about it is it makes trade easier, right? You don't have to send gold in like a ship across the ocean. Right. But what's bad about it is that the vast majority of those bank messaging transfers 
are done through a U.S. controlled system called the SWIFT, which means that if the U.S. kicks this country out of the system with sanctions, then they're screwed. I mean, it's very difficult for those countries to do trade. So Venezuela has suffered. Russia has been suffering, although Russia is a much bigger economy and Russia is forcing countries that that buy its gas and oil to do it in rubles. Right. Which is yeah, a way yeah. of preventing the inflation that we see in Venezuela. Right. Because when Venezuela sells its gold, it sells its gold in dollars. So that means that it's a way of trying to get dollars. But because it's doing it in dollars, it does it through the SWIFT system and the U.S. controlled financial system. And the US, U.S. law technically says that because uh, two foreign countries, like let's say India wants to do trade with Venezuela, even though they don't have anything to do with the U.S. in their trade, if India wants to buy oil and dollars from Venezuela, it, it, if India wants to buy oil from Venezuela, usually it would do it in dollars. And because it's doing it in dollars, the U.S. Treasury claims that that means that Technically, that financial transaction touches U.S. soil in scare quotes because it technically involves the U.S. financial system because it involves dollars. And then that means that the U.S. says that 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 its national domestic law in terms of sanctions is relevant for those transfers involving dollars, which basically means that it's illegal for Venezuela to do trade in dollars, which basically means it's illegal for Venezuela to sell its oil. Right. Right. So. This means that countries around the world are trying to figure out ways around this insane system where one country can control all international trade. And and in order to cement this system, uh, you know, I've often pointed out that many of the countries that we've full on invaded uh, and destroyed epically have dropped the dollar within a few years of when that invasion and destruction happened. Iraq, Libya, Syria, they all dropped the dollar. Uh, Libya is perhaps the most notorious one because uh, Gaddafi was going around trying to create an African currency called the gold dinar. And uh, then the U.S. got him uh, you know, bayoneted in the streets. Um, and so this, this seems that, yes, the U.S. creates coups in a lot of countries, but the ones it reserves the true like bombs raining down seems to most often be the countries that get rid of the the petrodollar. And one last note is this is what gives the U.S. dollar so much strength. The, the U.S. can print as much money as we want, which is how we spend a trillion dollars a year on the military and how we have crazy debt and it doesn't matter uh, too much, is that the U.S. dollar still has power because uh, it's the global reserve currency and it's the petrodollar. Yeah, that, that's so that's so true. I mean, Lee, th these points are so fundamental to understand really all imperialism, geopolitics, everything, you know, and you've done good work, for instance, on exposing the the over 20 trillion dollars in spending that the Pentagon has has carried out. That's completely just off the books. It's just they failed their first ever audit. And then after they failed their first ever audit, the Pentagon spokesperson said, yeah, well, we, we expected that we were going to fail. It was our first Wait, ever audit. And, like, and, as and there's a big deal. And there's an update. Just last week, they failed their fifth audit. And they came out and made a long announcement about how, yeah, we failed it again. And we can't account for oh, roughly 60% of all our assets. But we're making progress, is what they say every year. And the reason they can do that without significant inflation is because of the dictatorship of the US dollar. Now, 
this is a whole complicated dis debate around you know modern monetary theory mmt people who watch your show probably are familiar with some of the basics and i think most of it there are lots of elements of it that are true although if you carry out an mmt policy and you're not careful you will have hyperinflation right the point is that if you have a sovereign currency the government can just create more of that currency to fund social programs so if bernie sanders wanted to create healthcare and education they could just create the money they don't need to you know, people say, where's the money going to come from? Well, they right. never ask where the money's going to come from to invade Iraq, right? They just do yeah. it. So, yeah. but the point is, if you're not careful, then you can have hyperinflation. But the reason in the US there's not, until recently, which is not because of that, it's the inflation that we see more recently is because of corporate profits and corporate hoarding. It's because of supply chain issues. It's because of COVID and the disruption of the, the supply chain around the world. It's because of the Western sanctions on Russia and the proxy war in Ukraine and, and the rising price of oil and gas and the energy crisis in Europe. Anyway, whatever. The point is that the reason that the U.S. has had a lot of macroeconomic stability is because of this dictatorship of the dollar. And the economist Michael Hudson has spelled this out better than anyone else in the world. But the point I want to get at here is that the U.S. can lock out any country in the world from the financial system if it doesn't like their political policies. If they, if they elect a government, like in Venezuela, that nationalizes the oil and kicks out the US corporations, and the US doesn't like that, it can lock them out of the international financial system and do serious economic damage. So this brings us back to the point we were getting at earlier about the attempt in Latin America to create a new economic fi and fin financial architecture for the region. So this is part of what we see around the world. In, in Asia, we see an attempt with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which involves China, Russia, India, Pakistan, and Iran just joined, and Central Asia. They're creating a, a, a new payment system. They're talking about creating a new currency for international trade. The BRIC system, which involves Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, created a new bank to challenge the World Bank and a new an organism to uh, organization to challenge the the IMF. And now we see Latin America has new plans to create its own international currency. And what a, an, a leftist Ecuadorian uh, economist and presidential candidate, uh, Andres Arauz, has referred to as a regional financial architecture. And this is not entirely new. In fact, uh, it was Hugo Chavez, the revolutionary former president of Venezuela, who, who did, he did create a new currency in Latin America if you go down, there's some, something, there's an image of the Sucre, which was a, a currency that was created in Latin America. Actually, show this photo here. This photo, go, this photo is very important. This photo shows a 2007 meeting with the leftist leaders of South America from left to right. I mean, not politically, because they're all leftists, but in terms of on the, in the photo, you know, physically right, left to right. right. You have the Ecuadorian socialist president, Andres Arauz. Uh, perdón, uh, sorry, uh, Andres Arauz is the, you have Rafael Correa. Uh, Andres Arauz is his successor. Now, um, on, on the left is Rafael, Rafael Correa, who is a socialist, and he was president from 2007 until 2017. He also has a PhD in economics, by the way, so he, he really knows his stuff. To, to, to the right of him, not politically, but in, in the photo is the socialist, <laughs> yeah. the socialist former president of Bolivia, Evo Morales. And then you have Nestor Kirchner and his wife, uh, Cristina Kirchner, the leftist former presidents of Argentina. And then you have Lula da Silva, the president-elect of Brazil, who's coming back on January 1st. And then you have the president of Paraguay, who's more complicated. And then you have the 
socialist president of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez. So that was in 2007. They got together and they created a bank to try to challenge the World Bank called the Banco del Sur, which means the Bank of the South. Mm -hmm. And and then if you go down a little bit more, you can see and all the image. and all those leaders suffered no ramifications, right? Well, yeah. Wait, actually, go back up. Stay there on this photo. So stay stay in the photo. So yeah. no, no, stay in the photo. In 2010, there was a failed attempted coup against Correa, and then his successor did an internal coup in 2017. Right. There was a, a there was a coup, a failed coup attempt backed by the U.S. by fascists in Bolivia in 2009. And then there was a successful coup against Morales in 2019. And then there were, I mentioned the lawfare judicial coups against the Kirchners. And then there was a coup, a political coup against Lula da Silva's, his successor, Dilma Rousseff, in 2016. She was impeached by the Congress in one of those similar political coups. And then there was a second part of the political coup in Brazil in 2018, in which Lula da Silva was imprisoned on fake charges by the CIA asset. And then there was a briefly successful coup against, uh, against uh, Hugo Chavez in 2002 in Venezuela that briefly overthrew him, although he was so popular that, that the people of Venezuela filled the streets and demanded that he come back. For like, yeah, it lasted like two days. They kidnapped him and then he was brought back. <laughs> Yeah, in April 2002. And then, of course, there have been constant nonstop coups against his successor, uh, uh, Nicolás Maduro. And then also the president of Paraguay in 2012. This is not him in the photo, but his successor. There was a coup against him in 2012. So literally every country represented in this photo here has had a recent coup attempt or successful coup. And so, besides I mean, the besides the Bay of Piglets attempt that I mentioned, uh, Maduro also had a drone explode in front of his face during a a, uh, a campaign speech or what I mean a speech, and uh, and that that had links to the U.S. as well to Miami. Yeah, that that attack was coordinated by the fascist right wing opposition in based in Miami, the Venezuelan opposition. So anyway, all right. So go back down a little bit. Sorry, um, and show the what they call the sucre which was a currency that was created. So th that's it right there, the Sucre, S-U-C-R-E. So this was a briefly used currency that was created in Latin America that was created as part of the Bolivarian Alliance, the ALBA, the ALBA. The ALBA was created by the socialist governments of Venezuela and Cuba back when Fidel Castro was still president in 2004 because the George Bush administration, after the Clinton administration passed NAFTA, the North Atlantic Free Trade Organization, uh, Free Trade Agreement, after NAFTA was passed, which devastated Mexico, Mexico's economy, then the George Bush administration was trying to create a NAFTA for all of Latin America, which was called the ALCA in Spanish, that is. Um, so instead, the, uh, the socialist governments in Latin America created the ALBA, which also means dawn in Latin America. And it's the Bolivarian Alliance named after Simón Bolívar, who is the revolutionary general who successfully overthrew Spanish colonialism in South America in the 19th century. So these, the countries that joined the, the Bolivarian Alliance included the leftist governments of Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. It's not, it's not that photo. That photo is a little different. If you go yeah, back down to the Sucre, it shows the yeah. flags. It, that, oh, okay, it shows fine. the flag of, of Ecuador, Bolivia, Cuba, Nicaragua, and uh, Venezuela. So those were the countries that joined the Bolivarian Alliance. After the internal coup in Ecuador in 2017, 
Ecuador withdrew from the ALBA. After the briefly successful coup in Bolivia in 2019, Bolivia also withdrew from the ALBA. Honduras also joined the ALBA, but then after the U.S.-backed fascist coup in 2009 in Honduras, they withdrew from the ALBA as well. So we're seeing a pattern here. Anytime there's a U.S.-backed coup, they immediately withdraw from these organizations like the Bolivarian Alliance, like UNASUR. These are the organizations that have been trying to create an alternative to the U.S. dollar. And every time there's a coup, the coup regime withdraws from those alliances. So now this brings me to the latest attempt. So the Sucre was briefly used. And at, one, and at its peak in 2012, it was used for more than $1 billion U.S. dollars worth of bilateral trade. So what that means is that if Ecuador and Venezuela wanted to do trade with each other, they did trade with their own currency, the Sucre, instead of having to use U.S. dollars, which means right. that they could do trade with each other without this threat of U.S. sanctions and without having, also without having to go to foreign exchange markets to trade for U.S. dollars, because every time a country does that, it weakens its own currency and it strengthens the U.S. dollar, right? So that brings us to the latest attempt. Now there's a new temp attempt to create a currency for trade in Latin America, and that is called the Sur, which means South. In, in Spanish. So this, this is being spearheaded by the president-elect of Brazil, Lula da Silva, who's going to become president on January 1st, 2023. He said during his campaign in a rally in May that if he becomes president, they're making plans to create a new currency for inter-state uh, trade. Now, this is not the same as the euro, and that's, that's actually good because the euro system is awful. Because what yeah, it means yeah. is that the countries in the eurozone, the rich, wealthy countries with big economies, are they they dominate the the economy and they can use the euro to their advantage. Whereas the small the, the, euro, the, the euro by design uh, took uh, took political sovereignty away from a lot of these countries, so that if they wanted to help their people, they can't really do it without the approval of, like you're saying, the the richer, more in control countries. The eurozone, which is the economic zone that uses the euro, of the, not not every country in Europe is part of the eurozone. Switzerland, for instance, or Britain, which used to be part of the European Union, but not yeah. the eurozone because it yep. didn't use the euro; it had its own sovereign currency. Because even though you know we they're mean. evil, the people who run the uh, British political uh, economic system they understand how important it has to have your own sovereign currency. Right. You can't. You, so what that means is that the way that the euro was designed. Countries in the, the Eurozone, their governments cannot have more than a 3% government deficit in terms of GDP. So what that means is that they can't deficit spending. And basic Keynesian economics, show, economics shows that if you know, you're dealing with a depression, you need to spend, the government needs to spend into the economy to, ri to revive the economy, to create jobs and opportunities and bring about full employment, because if not, you could have a deflationary spiral like, like what happened in the, in the, after the Great Depression. It was the New Deal that brought the U.S. out of the deflationary spiral of you know, neoclassical economics. It was Keynesian economics became mainstream after that. So the, the, the countries like Greece and Spain, which have had chronic issues of unemployment and poverty, they can't, their governments cannot have deficit spending programs. This is basic Keynesian economics. We're not even talking about socialist policies. Like we're not talking about, you know, cre creating nationalized industry and, you know, job guarantees and all that. No, we're talking about yeah. basic 
Keynesian centrist economics. It's literally impossible among a lot of these countries like Greece who are stuck with this odious, unpayable debt. And, and what the European Central Bank says to them is privatize, sell off your state assets, cut the minimum wage, cut health care, cut education. So that's because Greece doesn't have a sovereign currency. They gave it up. So that, that's not what they're proposing for Latin America. The people creating the system are leftists. They're actually socialists. And one of the main people overseeing this is an economist who's finishing up his PhD named Andres Arauz, who is a minister under the Ecuadorian president, uh, Rafael Correa, who's also involved and he also has a PhD in economics. So these, these guys, and they know what they're doing. They're, they're very smart. And they, yeah. they, they know what they're doing in that regard. I just hope they know what they're doing in terms of stopping the U.S. from showing up with guns or, or, or law books. Yeah, well, so they understand that, of course, the U.S. military can just overthrow them or invade them or the U.S. can bribe people, the military. But they understand that how the economics of imperialism works, which is why they're trying to create this system. And what, the way it would work is that there was a blueprint that was written by this Ecuadorian economist Andres Arauz, who was the Minister of Knowledge and Human Capital under the former president of Ecuador, Rafael Correa, and he was the presidential candidate who won the first round of the election in 2021 by a landslide, but he lost the second round. So he's likely going to be the next president of Ecuador, and he's the one who's made, making this, this plan, right? And what their plan is that is that when Lula comes in in, in Brazil, they're going to create a Banco Central del Sur, which is a central bank of the South. They already have the Bank of the South, I mentioned, although it's basically been dead since all of the coups and stuff we talked about, right? So they're going to revive the Bank of the South. They're going to guarantee tens of billions of dollars worth of capital from the different countries in the Union of South American Nations, UNASUR. So that includes Brazil, uh, you know, uh, uh, Argentina, Chile, Venezuela, Colombia, they're going to maybe Ecuador, although I doubt Ecuador is going to participate because Ecuador right now has a right wing government. So anyway, they're going to revive that institution. They're going to create a central bank of the South that is going to oversee the creation of a currency, which is the SUR. Obviously, that's what central banks do is they oversee macroeconomic and monetary stability through currency policy, monetary policy. So what they're going to do is create this currency so if Brazil and Colombia, which both have left-wing governments, want to do trade, so Colombia has a lot of oil. And I mean, Brazil has oil too, but let, let's say, uh, you know, Brazil wants to export its soy to Colombia. Brazil produces a lot of soy. They will be able to sell, export their soy to Colombia using the sur instead of using the U.S. dollar. And that also means that they can do trade with Venezuela in terms of Venezuelan oil and minerals and other products and, and circumvent U.S. sanctions because obviously Venezuela can't export its oil in dollars. It's very difficult. So this is a game changer for Latin America. But of course, this is why the right wing in the region, which is also just, they're all, they're what you could call the comprador bourgeoisie. They're all parasitic financial bourgeois capitalists who have no loyalty to their local countries. All of their wealth is made through international commerce, financial speculation, and they are loyal to the U.S. first and foremost. So they are all opposed to these projects. And that means that, I mean, Peru, unfortunately, looks like it's definitely going to be out of this. It's not going to participate in this project. Uh, but if the right wing comes to power in Argentina, which has the third largest economy in Latin America, it's going to be a huge blow. 
But the two biggest economies in Latin America are Brazil and Mexico. And also Colombia and Venezuela have pretty big economies. Chile has a pretty big economy, although Chile is also a weak link. But if, if those countries, Brazil, Venezuela, Mexico, Colombia, uh, Bolivia, and Chile and Argentina, if they can form this economic alliance using a new currency, it would be a huge game changer yeah. for Latin America. That would also be a model for other regional blocks. So for instance, ASEAN, which is the Alliance of Southeast Asian na um, nations, they are a significant economic block and they have floated the idea, but not really implemented the idea of a regional currency for trade. This could be a serious model for the entire world that shows how to really build a multipolar world because you have to have not only multipolar political institutions like the BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, but we need multipolar financial systems. And we need to get out yeah. of this Bretton Woods financial system that was created in 1944 and that's dominated by the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. All all great points. Uh, we're, we're running out of time, but I hope it's all right if we go five minutes over to just cram in this Julian Assange story, because I, I know it's important and I don't want to miss it. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, we don't have more time because uh, of all these coups happening that we had to talk about. But uh, let's get into some of these uh, Latin American leaders standing up for Assange in a bigger way than uh, has been done in the past. Yeah, I mean, uh, what's good is, unfortunately, it's as as awful as this is for Julian Assange. What's good about it is that it's much simpler to describe because it's not it doesn't involve you know macroeconomics and the history <laughs> right. of the dollar and so Latin America is leading the entire world in campaigning for the freedom of Julian Assange. No other region of the world comes close. Pretty much all of the major leaders of Latin America have openly publicly called for him to be freed, and they're, they also happen to all be of the left, right? So we're talking about Lula da Silva, the president-elect who's going to become president of Brazil on January 1st, the, the largest, most populous country in Latin America. He openly called for freedom for Julian Assange. Lula, just a few days ago, he met with the editor-in-chief. Um, I can never pronounce his name well, I'm sorry. Haranthson, I think is how it's pronounced, of WikiLeaks. He also met with WikiLeaks' ambassador, Joseph Farrell. They've been taking a trip of Latin America. Lula said he sent his full solidarity and called for freeing Julian Assange, who's unjustly detained. They also met with the new left-wing president of Colombia, the first ever left-wing president, Gustavo Petro. He also called for freeing Assange, and he said that he's going to work with other countries in Latin America to pressure Joe Biden to drop the charges against Assange. Also, of course, the leftist presidents of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, and Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega, have very openly, forcefully called for uh, freeing Assange. They have praised Assange as the world's greatest journalist. In fact, uh, President Ortega in Nicaragua said that Julian Assange won the Peace Prize of the Peoples of the World. He said not the Nobel Prize, which they give to warmongers and murderers. And which is literally uh, named after the guy who invented dynamite, so it's appropriate. Yeah. And uh, of course, President Maduro in Venezuela has praised Assange repeatedly, called for him to be freed. The president of Mexico, the first left-wing president of Mexico in over 40 years, Andres Manuel López Obrador, AMLO, he praised Assange as the world's greatest journalist. He offered asylum to Assange, saying, come live in Mexico. And even in one of his press conferences, 
He criticized U.S. hypocrisy. He says, we have to take the Statue of Liberty out of New York because of the persecution of Assange. And he and Mexican President Lopez Obrador, he even showed the collateral murder video released by Chelsea Manning and WikiLeaks that shows the U.S. military killing Reuters journalists in Iraq. Also, the leftist former president of Ecuador, uh, Rafael Correa, he's the one who gave asylum to Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy in London in the first place. His successor, the presidential candidate I talked about, Andres Arauz, he has called for, uh, he's praised Julian Assange as well. And uh, I mean, all, all the major, I mean, I, I, we were talking about the vice president and former president of Argentina, uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. She also just met with the, the editors of WikiLeaks. She has praised Julian Assange as a great journalist who's helped inform the world. So, I mean, the point is that uh, the, the former president of Bolivia, Evo Morales, has praised uh, Assange and called for freeing him. The former uh, president of Honduras, uh, Manuel Salaya, has also been, he created an entire campaign calling for freeing Assange. And both of them, of course, were overthrown in U.S.-backed coups. So, I mean, the point is that every major leader in Latin America has called for freeing Julian Assange. And they're leading the world and they, they, in, in this campaign to free Assange. And they say that they're pressuring the U.S. to do it. Uh, yeah, all big things and uh, in support of Assange. And on top of that, you have the uh, Australian prime minister, uh, Albanese, uh, saying that uh, Assange could, that possibly Assange could come back to Australia. And, and although this is definitely the too little too late from our cowardly, spineless mainstream media, the New York Times, the, along with The Guardian and several other large mainstream Outlets uh, put out a statement uh, saying Biden should, uh, you know, drop the drop the indictments and, and charges and uh, and basically that Assange should be freed. Now, it's definitely too little too late, but I still kind of celebrate it in the sense that it seems rare that those outlets, especially The New York Times, do something like that without approval from the U.S. empire, their their handlers. So hopefully them saying that has some sort of connection to what the u.s government is doing yeah i mean i i of course i i have, I have little to know i I, have, I don't have little i have no confidence whatsoever in joe <laughs> biden i mean that guy doesn't even know where he is most of the yeah. time but i mean he does have the authority to pardon assange and we there you know people should pressure the biden administration pardon julian assange he's a political prisoner he informed the entire world about many things ironically not only about u.s crimes Early in people forget that in WikiLeaks early days, they actually also exposed, you know, uh, documents from the Russian government, from Turkey, Saudi Arabia. I mean, so like it's not just the, the attempt to portray WikiLeaks as like some Russian spy operation is absurd. He right. needs to pardon WikiLeaks as soon as po uh, pardon Julian Assange as soon as possible. Yeah. OK, Ben, thank you so much. Thanks for going a little over with me. Uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. Glad you're doing well. Everybody should, you know, have Multipolarista as as one of the tabs at the top of their uh, web browser and check it every day. And uh, is there anywhere else I should tell people to follow your work? No, just everyone should check out Multipolarista on YouTube. You can subscribe. I have a lot of videos. I have a podcast and yeah, I tweet a lot. So you can find me on Twitter, too. Huh? All right. Thanks again, Ben. Thank you. All right. That's Ben Norton. Thanks for being here, folks.